Whosoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And I think Christ isn't with us in the physical world anymore, but he lives within us. That's what union is all about, and understanding of it's every, every human we are in Christ's image in God's image and it's if we can get past the dogma and the anger and the hurt and the suffering of what religion organized religion has done and there's a lot of good things organized religion has done but really has to do with that condition of the heart that's what Christ came to do is build a relationship with your heart and that's up to you and him if you want to use that vessel Good morning. My name is Graham Durge, and I'm the founder and CEO of New Waters Recovery in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to our weekly podcast, Finding New Waters. Our goal in creating Finding New Waters is to provide a resource for families to help navigate the complexities of supporting a loved one struggling with substance use or mental health. When we find ourselves in crisis due to one of these issues, most people have no idea where to turn. We hope to shed some light on what is often the darkest hour for many families. I'm joined today by our, by our medical director, Dr. Harold Hong and Natasha Silverbell, the founder and CEO of Silverbell Coaching and Youth Prevention Mentors. Natasha has been an established expert in the substance use space for over a decade and has grown Silverbell Coaching into a global leader. Silverbell Coaching is headquartered in New York City and has satellite locations in London and Dubai. Natasha, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. It's so great to see you and congratulations on all your success. I'm really happy. Thank for you, you very much, ma'am. Well, you know, Natasha and I uh, go back many years and uh, have worked on, you know, many cases together, you know, over probably about the last six or seven years. So it's great to get her on here. And, uh, and really, I'd love to start with just hearing a little bit about, you know, I guess your story or how much you'd love to, you'd like to share with us on that. And just, I guess, how did you, you know, get into this field and, um, and in your, your own personal recovery, how has that really shaped your life today? Wow. That's a really great opener. And I'm happy to share <laughs> what I feel will, will honestly be most helpful. And as I begin sharing my story, I like to begin with how did my company find me? Because really, I didn't have a business plan and sit down and raise capital and say, this is what I'm going to do. Um, it was certainly just following where my heart was leading me most importantly, and what was important for me as a sober mother of three, raising my children on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and reinventing myself as a former model and finding a way to be of help to others but really be effective. And I think that's the most important piece I look when I create a team or collaborations is how can we work together in alignment to have a harmonious outcome? And the family system is complex, so it's not that easy to do and navigating it. And I really love the name of your, your podcast, Finding New Waters, because that's what we're doing with our families. Mm-hmm. Yep. And would you say, you know, and tell us a little bit about uh, Silverbell Coaching itself and really the work that you guys do. Now you guys are, you know, doing interventions and really case management for, for these families. So can you kind of dig into that a little bit and uh, tell people what that process is like? 
Sure. So we are, um, by God's grace, a word of mouth company and finding people who, or people finding us that are really needing the support is, is the catch because I want to find the opening. Um, openings of grace is what they've been called. Sometimes it's not a full intervention. Sometimes it's just a gentle conversation as I'm a mother of three from one mother to another. And I always do a courtesy 20 minutes to see, is this a good fit? Is our company the where your family is at? Are you really going to benefit from our services? And I like to listen to where they're at. And pretty quickly, I know if they can benefit or not, or if I'm going to refer them to someone else or another path in another direction. So I hope that answers your question. But um, yeah. at least the openings of grace is where I'm looking to be the most helpful with families. But yes, there are interventions, there's in-home support, creating treatment without walls, people call it, um, quarterbacking while their loved one does go to treatment so the family system can have support. Because oftentimes the quote-unquote identified patient goes and gets all this wonderful help and the family system is then left and needs to be that reframing and that mm-hmm. new water that is needed. Mm-hmm. A question for you, Natasha. So I work with a lot of families and I could say the time to get help was probably a year ago. And what are some things that families could know about and say, hey, actually now is the time to go get help. Now is the time to do a call with Silver Bell Coaching and see if we can we can make a difference in our family. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a beautiful call to take. And I'm definitely here for that. So I'll set up a courtesy Zoom for anywhere up to an hour to really understand. I prefer to have both stakeholders. Usually that's a mom and dad. It could be a care provider. It could be a trust and estates attorney. It could be a, a, you know, a financial wealth manager. And so there are many different people who are really important to shift the family system and the ethos of what hasn't worked to what can work. Mm-hmm. Well, I have web clients and they'll say, oh, you know, Samuel drinks, but it's always been like this. Um, you know, why, why make a change now? I'm not sure. Or sure, he got a DUI, but he got a DUI five years ago. Like, why, why do we need to do something big right now? Sure. So and I would say. So what are some things that. I think people just need to get calibrated on reality. Like, actually, this is okay. This is not okay. Um, but your your rules about what's okay are a little bit flipped around. And uh, you know, what are some common things you've seen people do that they accept that's actually not acceptable? So, well, I'll ask them. Let's just say that the person calling me's name is Amy, and I'll say to Amy, who's a mother of a twenty-five-year-old, and we're speaking. So there's there's some information right there. We're connecting, and why are we connecting? Why me? Why this level of support is even a curiosity? And I want to explore that curiosity with them and understand what brings them peace at night, and what's disrupting their peace. And let's explore: mm-hmm. is that peace not there? And that's really for them to come to terms with. And that's where we will begin a much more gentle, lighter touch approach of parent coaching one-on-one where we're there in real time. We are not clinicians, although many of our our coaches are clinician trained and we have clinical training for them, but we're really helping motivate the parents to understand what it is they want for their family system when they need it. So we're not going to diagnose and treat. We're going to take the present moment, and that means responsive in the day, in the hour of need. 
And that's the difference between coaching versus a therapeutic support, Mm -hmm. which we do want to work with their therapists. We then hopefully bring in that more robust approach and who are the people in their lives that they are listening to and benefiting from who do, maybe they have had a a great support system, but it's not yielding what they want anymore. Hence the Mm -hmm. disruption and peace and how then Mm -hmm. we can create a new ethos so we can find that, that flow of peace. Yeah. I love that question you pose that what, what do you, or, or do you not have peace about? Because I think, all too common people think the the time for intervention is when the house is on fire, like when there's a three alarm fire blazing away. But the bar for getting help is actually much, much sooner than that. It's do you have peace or not? And people wait for the bottom and there's always a trap door in the bottom and right about how we can help people, you know, and, and obviously in a 12 step program, there's a whole chapter in the back talking about the higher bottom and the edited versions for relevant now. Just like, you know, the King James Virgin version of the Bible is not relevant now. You know, mm. I like seeing different interpretations of language that's relevant now to understand where people are for movements of change. Yep. Love it. So can we can we go back a little bit and talk about your treatment without walls? Um, and I am, you know, want to elaborate on that a little bit because it's very unique to what you guys do. And uh, and we actually worked on a case, uh, you know, not too long ago together um, and, and went very well. And um, I just think that, you know, sharing with families, you know, that there are kind of other alternatives, other options, other resources out there that are a little outside the box, um, but but, you know, have great results um, is is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah. First of all, I just want to commend you guys on what you've created and what you have put together because having a sophisticated detox facility is a part of the rehab without walls because we don't, I, there are many companies out there that do in-home detoxes. I think a stabilization for that very sensitive time where people are changing their whole body chemistry, their mindset, so that we can be set up well when we go back into the in-home model is really important for that transition piece. Um, When I say rehab without walls, it really does mean living life on life's terms where that family system is. So oftentimes we're working with young adults that are at college and we're living off campus close by and coming and supporting them in their daily uh, routine of showing up to class on time, really those life skill developments and creating new social structures so that they can learn how to stay with their life goals, whether that is abstinence or it's just getting to class on time, getting homework done, learning how to cook, driving, living on a budget. Those are the, mm-hmm. you know, that probably 18 to 25 year old age group that we're really known for quite well. And those, those programs really go out around nine months to a year because the truth is I don't want to be in business. Again, I want to do a one, one and you're done shop really with a family system and usually with a really sophisticated, good detox program, and then setting up um, a navigation plan throughout the year. Um, we find that when you hit one year of continuous setting of life goals, usually abstinence, but I don't judge anybody's family system. We've done other pathways. Um, when the whole family system is engaged, we have a primary family therapist. You know, each parent has their own support system, whether it's a parent coach or a therapist. And there's an overseeing psychiatrist that's managing the medical treatment, and there's a primary therapist that's working with the loved one. 
then we're coordinating that care as, as a vessel that's holding all those um, professionals together. And we do a lot with eating disorders as well. So there's been very complicated teams, but when it's run well, it's really right. effortless. I mean, look at look at all the systems out there in the world that are run well and do it with excellence. And then there's ones that it's just a matter of clear communication and effective um, philosophical approach. Yeah, and, and that's and I think is the biggest barrier for a, a lot of people. Obviously, you know, not everybody can afford something like that, you know, a, a year long kind of program. But obviously, if you are able to, then um, what a great alternative. I, I, I just think about kind of I always think about my story, too. Right. And I was in college and was just a disaster. And I could have really utilized something like that, um, that that extra support, you know, getting to getting to class and, and doing all of that. But um, and I think that at that point, my family, you know, college was more important, right? They just wanted to get me through school, get me through school, because that's kind of what I guess looked good to the outside world. Right. So um, just have you know a degree. if you just have your degree and get a job, you'll be fine. Which right. exactly. is kind of a red herring, if you will. A hundred percent. So, you know, I think that obviously, you know, those families that just, um, they are not willing to put their, their child or their son or uh, loved one into a program for any period of time. I mean, doing something like that is, is really unique. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Any questions? Yeah. Um, just, when you're talking about uh, coaching versus therapy, um, what are some, what are some things that would make a coach a great fit for a family? Oh, what a great question. It ha I'm, I'm really a, a very sophisticated matchmaker. And so that's why mm -hmm. I love my courtesy Zooms on the front end of every case, which I do have the luxury of doing and being a part of putting those teams together, understanding what has the family's journey been like? What are their struggles? What are they looking to change? And what are their likes and dislikes, their mannerisms, their gestures, their passions, their hobbies, their talents, their, where were they born? What languages do they speak? And so you can, it's not always, oh, you're from the same country and the same background and I'm going to put you together. That's not always the right match. It has yeah. to do with the headspace of where they want to go and what do they want to accomplish with the family. So matching a parent with a certain parent is really strategic. Um, matching the loved one, uh, oftentimes there are two coaches on teams that we rotate. Um, and so we just want to make sure that we're putting together the right type of energy to create that connection. Mm -hmm. I think that's so key uh, to, to really make it bespoke uh, to the client and their unique situation. Um, and a lot of times I see this idea that uh, like, here's our mechanism, like here's our program, like everyone enters, everyone proceeds and everyone comes out better on the other end. Mm -hmm. um, but that's like part of our assessment approach has been to take a very detailed assessment of what does the current state look like? Uh, because, you know, if you want to get to Washington, D.C. and you're in New York, it, your path is going to look one way. But if you're coming from Austin, Texas, it's going to be a very different pathway. Mm -hmm. I think there's this like an apt metaphor to what recovery looks like for individuals and the families that are caring for them. And so I think that the silver ball coaching approach that's ultra bespoke and like really sensitive to uh, the unique characteristics of the family. Uh, mm -hmm. What are their strengths? What are their development goals? Um, what are their preferences? Uh, what, what types of energies do they really thrive in? 
I think that's like a great recipe for success and you know just a big part of the reason why we love working with you. Mm. Thank you. I, I will I dovetail on that because we are partnering with the family, not so much the clinicians. That's my wheelhouse to really research the best in class clinicians around the world and find out who I can partner with whom and what countries. And so when we really are partnering with the families, I'm not here to replace them. We are going to be making sure this family system finds a new way of flowing so that they don't need us. And that detailed approach, you know, Joanna was just reminding me, she's our creative director. She's brilliant. Um, that I was trained by a forensic psychologist, Dr. Marvin Aronson in New York City for many years. And the approach that we have today is still the same approach that he taught us. What does that mean? So it's a level of accurate reporting and diligence. So we have a very sophisticated portal that we're putting our real-time notes into that the clinical team can choose to engage and read and then defer and shift their treatment based on what they're reading. So mm. manners, gestures, reactions, how did that person come home? Um, so it's it may sound invasive, but it's actually really fruitful and beneficial for this in-home approach to work. If you're in a hospital, the the doctors are doing rounds with the nurses. There's portals, there's notes. Everybody has to take their notes. They have to, or you're not doing your job. So why mm -hmm. isn't that level of vigilance being done? Um, at least I don't know what other people are doing, but I've, I've had a lot of people say, I've never, I've never seen such diligence before. Mm. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, I think that that's everything, right? Is, um, and, and that's kind of my, my feeling about treatment really in general nowadays is, is that really, uh, in order to do really excellent treatment, you've got to have that kind of smaller, uh, more boutique feel, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, um, you know, again, going back to like the, the bespoke and, and individualization. I mean, so every client that kind of comes to us, you know, Dr. Hong, as you kind of explained, or, you know, you're meeting with them to do a very detailed assessment and, and everybody's treatment plan is going to look a little bit different, which is not really mm -hmm. the case at most places, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's in, in a lot of places, it's just kind of, you know, running you through the process and this is how we do things. And it's, and it's kind of, um, a cookie cutter, you know, scenario. Um, so, uh, I do think that, you know, we need to look, look towards those really small programs for, for that type of work. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit yesterday, uh, about a topic, uh, that I'd love to get into, cause I know you're very passionate about it. Um, but really the condition of the heart, um, mm. and, you know, I would love for you to kind of, uh, elaborate on that and what that means to you and, um, and, and talk about that a little bit. Thank you so much for that assist. I'm yeah. someone who doesn't shy away from the conversation about a sense of where do you get your source? Some people call it God. I'm a Christian and I'm not afraid to say that. And I think it's um, something that isn't talked about enough is that we are really helping heal the family system in their hearts. And when I really look through all the externals, I don't care how someone comes to me and presents to me because what I know about the human condition is that we all want healing and we want connection and we want to be understood and we want to be loved. Now, where's that boundary between enabling and supporting real continuity of care shifts and change? That lies in the discernment of the moment. And we can't know that until we're there. And so really pausing and waiting without judgment to assess and move through with an open heart, one heart to another, human to human, how can I be of service and help you? Mm, I love that. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about 
uh, what the concept of like the condition of the heart means means to you and how that is something of a compass in navigating your work with your clients. Well, that's really well said. And being a medical doctor, I mean, I'm not that well studied in, in medicine, but I've I've sat in thousands of really renowned psychiatrists' office and listened mm-hmm. to how they work. And there is a with the best in the world, I'd say there is a there is a gentle, compassionate touch with all that medical excellence that they are really tapping into that human condition. And so I'm sure that all the doctors that I've worked with would would talk about, you know, the condition of the heart, what makes a healthy heart and all of that. But really, it's that compassion piece, I think, that can if if one heart, let's say, if I'm sitting down with someone, my heart is open and full of compassion for that suffering human being. How can I be of service to help them heal? And when someone is met with nothing but that, that's what you get back. You get the openings Mm -hmm. of You get the beginning of those moments of grace where they feel seen and heard, where they're not going to be put aside or judged or I've got my checklist out. You know, I usually uh, am not sitting there taking a lot of notes myself, but um, it is really important to make them feel seen and heard so that they can feel whole in how they bring their family system that's been suffering to you. Mm -hmm. Which is so unique in today's age, right? We never stop and connect with people. It Mm -hmm. it really has become so impossible. There's just so much information coming at us all day, every day, so many responsibilities, kids, family, all that. And uh, I just think that that's such an important piece to to really just stop with these families, uh, be in the moment, and and obviously, you know, as you said, connect with them, right? I mean, this is is really heart-centered work uh, that we're doing, and Mm -hmm. it's got to kind of start there. I will. Absolutely. I will. Oh, go ahead. Uh, just as you were talking with us, it, I was getting a sense of what it would be like to be in the room uh, if you're in a coaching session or if you're hosting an intervention conversation. Um, and it just strikes me as being so different in a tremendously better way than like what's kind of status quo. Because, I mean, in healthcare, there's there's so much of this idea of like there's a practice guideline. There's the right way to do things. Here's the right thing. Here's the wrong thing. And mm-hmm. everything just comes down to like being correct or incorrect, like being mm-hmm. on track with the practice guidelines that have been established for like a population, but not necessarily for you. And that has a lot to do with the underlying issues of this black and white thinking that really feeds addiction and emotional pain. Yeah. And so yeah. I think like this, this idea that Let's come to this conversation by first reflecting on how are we feeling in our heart about Amen. ourselves? Like, how are we feeling about the person we're focusing on for the intervention? And mm-hmm. let's discern our motivation or like, let's discern like what's actually restorative for this person. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a radically different approach than yeah. how traditional clinical care is delivered these days. So that is such a gift for the families that you're working with. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for say, for sharing that. And it is, it is a real, um, an honor and a grace to sit down with a family and really see them without the past and be in the present moment, because that's the only time that change can occur is in the present and helping them hmm. harness their power within that moment. And what that does is, it, it creates these openings to talk about God, to talk about mm. their maybe 
you know, there's a lot of recovering Catholics and I am a recovering Christian yeah. too. I ran from my up, my dogmatic upbringing and went on my prodigal son journey and came back with my own seeking and my own investigation. I love to quote Rumi where what you seek is seeking you. So that, that famous quote by Rumi, what you seek is seeking you. And just creating that spark of curiosity with them to reinvestigate, mm. not be so angry and hurt by the may that, by maybe the way they were raised. And that maybe there might be something out there that can really help assist them in their healing journey. Because most families that I work with that come to us have lost their faith. They've lost mm -hmm. any connection to a source, mm. an understanding of a higher power. They feel so wounded and, and hurt by it. And very gently, very gently, we tap into those conversations when they're ready to hear that message. Uh, recently, with my my worldly um, travels, I've come across the last few years of an incredible young man named Neo Hart, and he is what they would call an alchemist. Years ago, that was new for me to understand what alchemy is and what is that approach. And it's very non-threatening. It's very relevant now. I think alchemy um, is something that can be a very gentle approach to people to be curious. And Neo, what I really appreciate about him is he created something, uh, 20 years of his life's work. Um, he studied in Japan and, and all over the world. And he created a deck of cards. They're not uh, fortune telling. I'm not somebody who believes in listening to others to tell me my future. I'm very much, uh, I want to empower the person that they can create their own future. Mm -hmm. But he created a deck of cards that have words on it that he defined over many, many years to, to produce this. And they're out now. And um, we use them with our clients now. And for example, one of the cards would be sword, the definition mm. of sword. And what does yeah. that mean? And what does that mean to that person and then going into his definition. So his definition is very robust and gentle and kind. But for me to share with you what the, the word sword means, the sword of the tongue. And I think we forget mm. how powerful our words are and how they're connected mm. to our mind. And that mind-heart connection is so powerful. I used to follow and still do. He's since passed away an uh, evangelical pastor who was an atheist from India named Dr. Revi Zachariah. And his headquarters were in Atlanta. Um, he, um, he has created a big center and following. He recently just passed away a few years ago. And he would go debate college students. And, um, and he would always say the most challenging connection, the most difficult connection for every living human being is the heart-mind connection. Mm -hmm. How can we use heart-mind connection to be in with the integrity of the person we are, we're to become? or who we haven't been and how we can nurture that inner child. A lot of the clinicians do that inner child work. How do we bring that suffering child out to the light without doing it at a pace that's going to, let's say, backtrack us? So it's a very gentle approach. Um, yeah. So. And, you know, talking about that, the, the mind heart connection, obviously that takes practice, right? And there are things that we need to be doing to, um, you know, to make that connection stronger. Uh, and, and so what are some of those things that you practice in, in kind of your daily routine? Or is it meditation? Is it, you know, some sort of somatic therapy? Um, and what do you do on that? So currently today, um, yeah. what my practice is, is 
you know, some people call it in the 12 steps, that constant contact with God. That's what I'm aspiring to throughout my day. How can I remain in the divine connection without being weird or crazy or that I'm always on a pink cloud or something? That's not reality. Um, I am very much grounded in the present moment, and I'm very comfortable there because that's the only time I can tap into that conscious contact. Ways in which I help myself do that um, currently is I do read a lot of scripture. I like reading in the Amplified Version. It has the Aramaic, the Hebrew, and the Greek translations of each word. So I can do a deep investigation of, of, of something. And I want to share with you uh, a passage, yeah. and it has to do with finding new waters. And so mm -hmm. I thought I would give this to you. It's, it comes from the book of John. And I'm going to find it here in one second from the book of John. And um, whosoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And I think Christ isn't with us in the physical world anymore, but he lives within us. That's what union is all about and understanding that it's every, every human, we are in Christ's image and God's image. And it's, if we can get past the dogma and the anger and the hurt and the suffering of what religion, organized religion has done, and there's a lot of good things organized religion has done, but really has to do with that condition of the heart. That's mm -hmm. what Christ came to do is build a relationship with your heart. And that's up to you and him if you want to use that vessel. And Christ isn't here to save every single soul, isn't going to accept that. And that's okay too. But find something that works for you. And that's where the alchemy creates a beautiful opening with these cards. Because if I could read, and maybe we'll send them to you later, uh, really beautiful, really, I'll send you a deck as, as a courtesy and you can Google mm -hmm. the research. Um, he's so gentle and kind. And and not being, I think, the most important piece in our work and what I identified with Neo in his work, although he's not a Christian, I really honor and respect, I have a reverence towards his work and his journey because he's not attached to the outcome. And I think mm. that's probably the most important piece in our work and certainly in SBC is that all we can do is create the space for the healing and the awareness in the family and then put those beautiful practitioners in place and hold them accountable. But we're not attached to that outcome. That family has a right for their journey and their path. Wow. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. how, how do you work with families that maybe don't feel as in touch with their spirituality as you feel in touch with your spirituality? I, mean, I think that this is so key. We don't send it's, them the foremost. <laughs> you don't send them the what? The podcast. Uh. Um, I'm just not, I don't live in uh, fear anymore of what people will think of me and my relationship with Christ, but I certainly don't lead with it. I can read mm. someone's energy as soon as they even send me an email about how open mm. they are to the healing journey. And there are many cases where I've never, they never know my, my relationship with Christ. They don't need to, to heal. It's not about me. And so I just want to create the vessel of compassion and awareness and that willingness. People say, oh, you can't help somebody who's not willing. Yes, you can. Oh, mm -hmm. yes, you can. You can create willingness. It doesn't mean force. That's where you begin with those stakeholders. It's slow intervening. 
years and years ago, there was a woman in New York City, um, and you've been to the SBC townhouse, Graham, you know, um, and she was there leading a workshop. Her name was Jamana Grassi, and she's still treating people up in uh, Connecticut. She's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And she watched what I was doing. This is about eight years ago. And she watched what I was doing with this community of young men. And she was under trying to understand my approach to how they all became, you know, in their sober journey together and created community. But beyond that, she says, what you're doing are interventions. I said, no, I'm not a trained interventionist. She goes, Natasha, it's a compliment. What you're doing (laughs) is intervening in these people's lives at a pace that is sustainable and palatable. And that's Mm. that temperature of creating willingness. If someone is showing up, I've had other people outside of our space say, how do you work with addicts and alcoholics and people who are, you know, so sick mentally, you know, they lie to you all the time. And I just look at them with so much compassion. I'll say, they're not lying to me. I'm not taking on their, their suffering in that capacity. I am making sure they're feeding off of what I'm offering them instead of me taking on their 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 burdens is what they are but i it's you know that mm-hmm. that scripture the yoke is easy and the burden's light it really is yeah. you know yeah. and if you can be that essence of hope and healing for them all their worries and their concerns eventually fade away and you're you really are creating a space of of them to want to get better right mm-hmm. and as i'm listening to you natasha i'm i'm just realizing a new thing about advice that I would give to clients or family members that are looking for help is what's your sense of their heart? Uh, because yeah. there are people who have a hard heart that, that are in the business that are, that are trying to work with clients. And I think those relationships, the progress is, is very difficult. If not, sometimes uh, no movement or even backwards movement. Um, but we all we've all had those experiences where we're working with people who have there's something unique about them. Like there there's a tenderness, there's a wisdom, there's mm-hmm. a deep spiritual connection, and it's you feel it. It's not based on what they're saying, but you can see it in their actions. You can see it in their tone, uh, how they connect with people, and I think part of recovery and rehab is for people who have hard hearts is to see what life is like for people who have wise and healthy hearts, right? Amen. But in, until you see it, it's hard to imagine what it would look yeah. like and even more difficult to make that transition. If if I may, and I think therein lies such an important part, especially to our industry, because we are in the healing industry. Mm. We're in the behavioral space of mind-body healing and helping people find their path without judgment so I'll, I'm engaged to a very successful um, Columbia or um, Cornell and Harvard Business School graduate who's an amazing man in my life. And he'll always say to me over my years, we've been together over a decade, he's watched my company grow. And he's like, how is it that you are able to not only manage people who are really struggling and family systems, but you're managing people because everyone in my practice is in recovery too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're healing on their journey. And it's a lot of a lot of healing and wounds that are constantly maybe needing to be tended to. So I want to make sure that all of the coaches and the clinicians that are working 
within the SBC system have their own governance and care. And we offer supervision and we help make sure that they're doing their work so they can give that beautiful offering to someone else because you can't give away what you don't have. And I think that speaks to your point is the condition of the provider's heart. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm helping them pay attention to their own heart and helping, but you can't tap into that if your heart isn't in a healthy space that is creating Mm -hmm. that healing process. I mean, that's so on the money and and is something that we talk about on on the regular uh, here just because you know, first and foremost, for me, having a really healthy culture um, is the most important thing. And that kind of starts with our staff, right? Taking care of our staff, first and foremost, making sure, as you said, probably 75% of our staff is in recovery. So, you know, and they're getting triggered and they're, you know, listen, even if you're six, eight years in recovery, you know, things are still going to come up and you're going to have struggles and you're going to have difficulties. And, um, and we, you know, that work-life balance is is such a, a essential part of this process, but also continuing the work, right? And not, and not, I think what we see so much is that people stop doing work on themselves and, uh, and get a little bit crispy. Word, <laughs> <laughs> it is crispy. And I think it's so important because when we're working with a family system, whoever is the primary caring vessel, whether it's the case manager, the coach, the therapist, the detox center, is that we're always asking the family system and the parents, what can they do to change the ethos? Because it really does start in a parenting. And I am not saying, as a mother of three, I am not saying the parents are a problem. There is genetic trauma that's being diagnosed and uncovered these days. I'm working with really uh, a really great psychiatrist in the United Kingdom named Dr. Wayne Campers. He's a trauma and pain management specialist, and he does many. There's genetic testing that's really important, but understanding generational trauma and understanding Mm -hmm. bloodlines and understanding that hold on a second, some of your kids can turn out like everything seems fine, and they're checking off all the boxes and they're skipping to school, and your other child is not getting out of bed. What what am I doing as a parent that can be better? So having that space where the parents don't feel that they've done something wrong and asking them to go what Neo calls is a deeper intelligence of themselves. Because parents, although maybe didn't cause the trauma, they can help shift that new, that as you would say, finding new waters so that they don't have to live in that old trauma. And I think that's the trickiest part. The word crispy just triggered me to think of it, Graham. <laughs> I just wanna... <laughs> that's the heaviest lifting is with the parents because no parent wants to be told that they screwed up and they didn't. They didn't, but they have an opportunity to find something new now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And we're fortunate enough that, you know, hopefully those, you know, that generational trauma or wounds um, you know, us getting into recovery is is going to stop that pattern, right? Um, and that's the hope. That's you know that we are passing this down to our children, and we can you know we can really do some some great uh, change. Um, you know, I have three daughters myself, and you know, obviously, you know, cards are probably stacked against us that one of them is going to have an issue, right? <laughs> My wife's in recovery. I'm in recovery. So. Um, but you know, I, I do think it's, it's really interesting too. When we sit down, Dr. Hong actually does a, uh, a full genogram with all of our assessment clients and it's just so informative. You know, he sits with them for an hour and a half and, and, you know, does it all by hand and for them to see the patterns. And typically it kind of starts with, 
no, my childhood was great. I, you know, I had everything that I could have ever wanted and things were mm-hmm. great. Mom and dad were great. Yada, yada, yada. And then you start digging into it and it's like, maybe things weren't as rosy as I painted them to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and seeing it in black and black and white is really powerful. I think. Right. It is. And I'm so glad you do that, Dr. Hong, you know, and also understanding with parents and loved ones that they weren't supposed to see it then because they wouldn't be able to cope with it and giving them some grace how they can cope with it going forward and relieving that burden for the parents. You know, that's probably the bulk mm-hmm. of our work is with parents. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try and begin the sessions by saying we're, we're entering like a special space where there's no judgment and there's no mm-hmm. shame. We are just trying to be real. And then we can go in and say, um, yes, uh, mom, Mom was in bed in depression for two years, but we can say that without necessarily anger or resentment. We can just put it on the paper, and we use this huge sheet of paper, and we we really spread it out. And and when we can say that without uh, anger or resentment, then we open ourselves up to this new ability to see our history in a new way, right? Yeah. So we just open. We just had an assessment client come through, and you know it's amazing how the pattern is so common uh lots of addiction lots of self-destructive behaviors and that leads them to come into the facility uh i open with this very broad question like what was it like to grow up in your home mm-hmm. and it's usually the first answer is great perfect <laughs> wonderful <laughs> and um and then i say okay well tell me more about this relationship tell me more about that relationship and then i'll i just i get curious like oh that's interesting you know so mom Mom wasn't around and the kids, you guys bought your groceries. You guys did your own cooking and like, what was that like? And, and then it, and then they start to remember more and more things. And then usually in each session, there's this moment of stunned, silent reflection as, as they're beginning to rethink their history and they see things differently. And we, we tie it back to this, this, earlier work where we say, like, how do you relate to yourself? And they, they see, oh, I relate to myself the way my parents relate to me. And then, oh, my parents treated me that way because that's how their parents treated them. And, and they're mm-hmm. stunned. And then and then I, I draw a circle around, usually they're, they're younger people, and I, I draw a circle around them and their spouse or their young children, their family system. And and then they see that they have this ability to create uh, a new line, like mm-hmm. a new way of, of, of a new legacy of inheritance uh, mm-hmm. for their generations to come. Well uh, said. So that, that's really an, an amazing experience. But I think it, to me, it really does feel like a, a sacred moment, right? It like is. there's something special happening. There's it, some type of truth telling and restoration of the condition of the heart you, at, you, in that moment. You are breaking ancestral trauma, ancestral generation. People will talk about, Dr. Aronson would talk a lot about the Holocaust survivors and what the genetic testing of Holocaust survivors and what would make them survive versus that didn't. And, you know, what was that about? And how could some just go on and have a normal life after that and others couldn't? And understanding that and then how that manifests going forward and so on. But that's exactly what we're doing. We are talking about stopping centuries and centuries mm-hmm. 
generational trauma and patterns. And it's not all bad. And helping them understand that it's only through suffering. You know, you only can really see light you know, through the darkness, you don't get light just because it's light. You have to have that contrast to understand. Mm -hmm. So it's just so important to reframe that. Like you just said, this is a beautiful moment. Look, your mother had her own trauma that maybe she doesn't even know about. And that's why she is the way she is. And she can't even understand the way she is, but you can, you Mm -hmm. get to help system heal without having to do your mother's work for her. And I think there's a there's so much in that mother daughter bond that we could spend many episodes on that <laughs> mm. is so important and vital. And then we could talk about the relationship with the father and how yeah. important that is. And that I will bring it back to that spiritual component because a mother typically is one who brings the spirituality into the home. However, it is when a father hits his knees that it's the most powerful for the children to watch and emulate. And mm. when a father mm-hmm. is grace to a higher power it is the most calming for a child yeah yeah i love that well you know this has been a great time chatting with you natasha and and thank you so much for joining us today um i did want to say you can find these episodes on all streaming platforms um uh, please visit uh, silverbell coaching at silverbellcoaching.com um, mm-hmm. And finding new waters at findingnewwaters.com. And thanks so much, and we will see you next week.